I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Hi, everyone. Welcome today. Um, We're doing a special Christmas Eve podcast, if you will, to give you some ideas about um, how you can preach on Isaiah 9, 2 through 7 for Christmas Eve. And this year in particular, we know a lot of folks that may not have traditionally preached a sermon on Christmas Eve may find themselves in that space during COVID-19. And we've been working with Isaiah during these last few weeks, and we thought, hey, let's, let's talk about this again, because this may not be your typical sermon topic, but yet I think it's important. I think it fits well within what we've been doing. So I'm going to turn it over to Alan, but this very first question, geez, why are we talking about Isaiah from the Hebrew scriptures uh, for Christmas Eve? <laughs> Well, I I think for for me a couple of reasons you said it. I mean, it 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 does seem to help wrap up the themes that we've been seeing from the other texts from Isaiah. But frankly, I mean, how many of us when we see this text here don't do not hear Handel's Messiah <laughs> for unto us a child oh, is born a son of yeah. I mean, how many of us don't hear that? <laughs> you know, it's it. it's. <laughs> So, so we automatically assume that Isaiah is talking about Jesus, and and I that's problematic to say the least. Um, I, I don't think that the problems um, make it to impossible to refer to Jesus, but we have to work our way from A to Z to get there. We can't just skip straight to it and unfortunately that's what a lot of people do they see this passage a lot of folks in the pews are going to see this passage and they're going to think oh isaiah was predicting the birth of jesus right and of course we've been taught to read it that way and i'll talk with the reformers how this becomes even more ingrained during the 16th century uh but i think let's let's go back and put it in its original context um and why don't you give us some of the history and background of of that original context well, we're, we're dealing with the ministry of Isaiah, we might say first Isaiah, the original Isaiah, in Jerusalem in the years prior to enduring the Assyrian dominance over this whole region. Uh, unfortunately, we can't date it precisely in terms of years because there are inconsistencies even within Second Kings in terms of the dating of the years of the, of the reigns of the kings. But we can know that it was during this time of turmoil created by the rise of Assyria. I think, just the historian in me, Assyria was a power for quite a long time. I think we tend to, since we live in such a small, especially Americans, amount of time, you know, we're, we're talking about when we think of foes, maybe four years or 10 mm-hmm. years. This is still a, a yeah, big no, swath they, of time. They dominated yeah. the, the, the whole Middle Eastern world for about a century. Yeah, yeah. and they were... Yeah. They were known to be very ruthless yep. and um brutal uh, yeah yeah brutal yeah, brutal yeah, yeah. Right. so sorry to insert that but yeah um. so in, in response to that apparently the king of syria and the king of israel the northern kingdom uh, formed an alliance to protect themselves and uh, apparently they tried to get ahaz the king of judah to join them and when he refused they decided to to basically take over Judah and install their own king who would be who would cooperate with them basically and so uh, in, in that setting um, the text speaks then of a birth of a child who would fulfill the special hopes of the people for deliverance but we have to place the birth of this child in Isaiah chapter 9 into the context of Isaiah chapter 7 through 9 as a whole um, the reason for that is because um, this, this whole section really kind of forms a unit. And so in Isaiah 7, Isaiah addresses Ahaz with the message that Judah would be spared from the threat Syria and Israel posed. Um, and at the same time, he warns Ahaz that uh, he must stand firm in faith or he would not stand at all. And apparently, 
in the aftermath because of Ahaz's unbelief and disobedience, um, Isaiah turns to a warning of impending judgment at the hands of the Assyrians. So in this context, in Isaiah chapter 7 through 9, in this setting of the Assyrians threatening everything and, and Syria and, and Israel threatening Judah, um, Isaiah speaks of the births of several children as signs for Judah. So first they're Isaiah's sons. Shir Jashub, which means a remnant will return, and Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Say that three times fast. <laughs> which means I'm gonna name my cat that right, next time. <laughs> right. The spoil speeds, the prey hastens. And they're both intended as signs for Judah, though it's unclear what what they're meant to signify, whether it's assurance or judgment, or both. Next, Isaiah speaks about the birth of the Emmanuel child in Isaiah chapter 7. And the identity of the child is ambiguous, but it clearly refers to a child born in the 7th century BC, since the significance of his birth is meant to demonstrate that the threat posed by Syria and Israel would be short-lived. So in, in the first place, this child, this Emmanuel child, is, refers to a child born in that day and time who will be a sign for Ahaz that God is going to deliver them from Syria and Israel. So question comes to mind. So do we have a person we think it is? I mean, some think this is Hezekiah, right? Um, Calvin will even talk about this. Is this, yep. is this Hezekiah? We'll, we'll get to that. Oh, I'm, we'll get I'm to ahead. That. I'm that's ahead. Okay. Of, I'm I think ahead we have a few more steps to go before we Dang, get there. I was so excited to get there. Okay. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> I think it's important to note that the that the Emmanuel child also appears in Isaiah 8, and there in the context of Assyrian domination. And even there, where Judah is experiencing judgment, the Emmanuel child signifies the presence of God with the people. So again, we're talking about someone in that day and time. Um, then we have finally in Isaiah 9, 2 through 7, the birth of the child in the text for today. And again, the identity of the child is not specified. There are some options. So here, here we're getting a little bit closer to answering your question. All right, all right. And, and I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> one option would be that the Emmanuel child and this child are the same person. That's not everybody thinks that. Some mm -hmm. people think the Emmanuel child was just maybe some anonymous child right. born, you know, and just the fact that by the time he's old enough to tell good from right from wrong, you know, things will be resolved. But it, it, it is an option that the Emmanuel child may be the same person as the child in our text for today. And if that's the case, then um, again, some people think, well, maybe it's just some anonymous child right, right. or maybe it's one of Isaiah's sons but I don't think in either of those cases um, I don't think those options fit the rather exalted description of the role of this child in our passage for today so I, I don't think it's I don't think it's an anonymous child I don't think it's Isaiah one of Isaiah's sons another option would be that the birth of the Emmanuel child and this child in Isaiah 9 both point to the birth of a crown prince of Judah very likely either Hezekiah or Josiah um, uh, both of them were said in second Kings to have done what was right in the sight of the Lord um, I would choose Hezekiah myself because he seems to have been born closer to the events that serve as the backdrop mm -hmm. for this segment of Isaiah. Uh, also, 2 Kings, interesting, when it talks about Isaiah, uh, Hezekiah's reign, it says something very special about Hezekiah. It says that in 2 Kings 18.5, it says, There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah after him or among those who were before him. So Hezekiah is... is rated the best king of judah ever and of all time right and so um that seems to point to hezekiah as well mm -hmm. finally um first isaiah concludes with the extended narrative of events in hezekiah's reign that um uh, included the deliverance from the assyrian the massive assyrian army that threatened jerusalem and um the um um foolish, rather foolish um, option of Hezekiah to allow the Babylonian envoys to tour Jerusalem, which Isaiah says will lead 
to the ultimate demise of, of Judah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. by the way, Isaiah 36 through 39 is essentially the same text verbatim as 2 Kings 18, 13 through 20, 19. Uh, and so it's interesting that we have that, uh, you know, put in there. Right. You know, right. Some, the, 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 the Jewish scribes of the first century said that it was the men of Hezekiah's court who put together the book of Isaiah. That would tend to... Well, support that, that view. It would support that view, yeah. and and uh, that would be a typical kind of ancient um, right. text kind of thing right. to right. to have that kind of um, uh, reference and re-reference and um, elevation of the king, even in this language. Right, right. right. Mm-hmm. Now, many will point to the fact that the chronology of Second Kings doesn't work for Hezekiah, but there's a problem with that anyway because if you follow the the, the way they date the reigns of the kings, then Ahaz would have been 11 years old when he gave when he when he fathered Hezekiah, which that seems rather unlikely. Probably, probably not, right? <laughs> probably not. So, so I mean, um, and and then I mean, you just have the the plain historical reality that despite the elevated hopes associated with his birth, his reign, although perhaps we could say with Second Kings, it was the best of the kings of Judah. He was the best of the kings of Judah. Nevertheless, his reign failed to live up to the exalted hopes expressed in this passage yep. for, uh, from Isaiah. Yep. So because of this, some would say that both the Emmanuel child and the child in, in Isaiah 9 refer to a future king who would fully realize the promise of our text for today. And they, I think, are are heavily influenced by the Christian reading of this passage by the Gospel of Matthew. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that one thing that speaks against that is the fact that the verbs in our text in Isaiah chapter 9 speak of something as uh, something that has already happened. A child has been born, a son has been given. Right. This is something that has already happened. Mm-hmm. Now, um, a lot of people take the view that the prophet prophet was adopting the viewpoint of looking at future events as if they had already happened. I, I'm not convinced by that. Right. That doesn't make a lot of sense out of the historical setting. It doesn't, it takes this verse, this passage totally out of its context. And anytime right. you do that, you, you know, there need to be red flags and, you know, sirens going off. Right, right. Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, kind of the history of, of churches adopting this as being a Christian yeah. text has made us even see it that way. Mm-hmm. I, how many of us, even <laughs> as Alan's telling us, are going, really, it's in the past? You know, right. we're, we're so accustomed to hearing it yeah. as a Christ child, and we want to. We want to hear that. Um, but if we, if we look at this passage in the light of Isaiah and yeah. in the light of Second Kings, it's very clear in that setting that it's referring to someone born in that time. And so in light of all of that backdrop, I would say both the Emmanuel child and the child of Isaiah 9 probably originally referred to an heir of David's throne born in that time, most likely Hezekiah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the fact that his reign ultimately failed to live up to the hopes and promises of our text simply speaks to the fact that he was a human being and he was flawed. Uh, um, and the Assyrians were there. Right. Uh, right? right. I mean, right. yeah, historically, yeah. you know, um, they had better weapons. <laughs> yeah, and, and more, more of them. And more of them, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but but here we here we have the transition then from Isaiah to the Christian use exactly. of this passage, because it was that fact. It was the fact that even the best of the Jewish kings failed to live up to the hopes and promises made in Scripture, uh, that led to the idea that one day a king would come and would fulfill these hopes right. and would fulfill these promises. And this is what made it possible that Matthew could, and I would say should, interpret Isaiah 7.14 and, mm-hmm. and in this mm-hmm. passage as well with reference to Jesus' birth. Now, interestingly, <clears throat> the only place that um, Isaiah 9, 2 through 7 is quoted in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 4, and there it's in re- with reference not to Jesus' birth, but with reference to his ministry in Galilee, the land mm-hmm. of Zebulun, the uh-huh. land of Naphtali, uh-huh. uh, the land that dwelt in darkness has seen a great light. In- and so get, since Jesus, you know, this is Matthew uses this text to explain Jesus' ministry in right. Galilee, not his birth. <laughs> right. Yeah, interesting. Um, 
is this is this a construct of Matthew and Matthew's space of of having uh, such a gospel that has such um, reflection to the Jewish past compared to like Mark? Well, um, if you compare Matthew to Mark, for example, and even to Luke, um, Matthew has this fulfillment theme where he is very keen to show that Jesus fulfills scripture. And he quotes, you know, it happens numerous times in Matthew's gospel. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, and then he'll quote uh, a prophet. And um, uh, yeah, that is a theme in Matthew's gospel is pointing out how Jesus fulfilled Hebrew scripture. And I think we can, we can give Matthew that, that he sees Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of this without saying that Isaiah was predicting Christ. So it depends on the direction right. you're going from. You know, it, is Isaiah looking forward to the future and seeing Jesus? I don't think so. Probably not. Matthew looks back to the past and sees in Jesus the fulfillment of the hopes expressed by Isaiah regarding very likely the birth of Hezekiah. And so I think we have to we have to get the direction right. Well, you know? I like... Th- I- I think that's good. I think that's richer than this kind of um, predetermined. Mm-hmm. Uh, this well, it, is a it doesn't this fit ahead. the apologetics of some people, you know. But oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. But I think it's more historically accurate, and it and it does justice to the scripture as a whole. It does justice to the book of Isaiah as a book of scripture. Right. You know, right. not as right. just something we can use at whim. You know, we're gonna if we're gonna look at Isaiah as scripture, we're gonna try to be faithful to interpret it in light of its original context mm-hmm. as well. Uh, yeah, excellent. Yeah, excellent. I think um, that all makes sense. And as we get to our reformers later, we'll kind of see where they are in this world, which is kind of interesting, actually. Sure. Of interpretation. Sure. But, um, now you know we've dug in a lot to the to the historical significance. The, yes. the the message of the text here, I think, is clear. I don't think there's any question about the message of the text, and that is that it's the birth of this child is meant to signify that God will uphold the promises he made regarding David's throne and regarding Jerusalem as the place he chose for his name to dwell, whether by deliverance or by judgment. And that depends on whether the people stood firm in the faith. Okay, so, you know, um, when, when times when they stood firm in the faith, God delivered them, as when the Assyrians came knocking on Jerusalem's uh, door <laughs> under Hezekiah's mm-hmm. reign. But there are other times when he, he, he upheld that promise by judgment, by, by, um, by allowing them to, to fall. One might walk into this and see this and go to that concept of... Um, the Old Testament God who of wrath. Um, I don't know. Why don't you explain that? Is is this ultimately a message of hope or one of judgment? Well, um, the thing is, both deliverance and judgment are a message of hope. I would say, because the idea is God is going to be true to Himself. God is going to be true to the promise. That that David's throne will be upheld, and that Jerusalem will be the place where he chooses his name to dwell, even if that means he has to give Jerusalem over to be destroyed. Now, is that the end of the story? I don't think so. Because we, don't, I th- we don't think so, no. right? right. And, and so I think, and you, and you see that in Isaiah as well. Third Isaiah picks this up very strongly, that Jerusalem is going to be uh, restored and going to be lifted up, and it's going to be uh, its future glory is going to surpass its original glory. You know, uh, one of the themes of Second Isaiah is to forget about the former things because I'm going to do something new that's going to be totally astounding that you're going to not even remember the former things. So, right. so um, I, you know, I think this is something we may have a hard time wrapping our heads around. But, but God is faithful to His people both by delivering them and by allowing judgment to fall upon them when when necessary. I keep thinking about how apropos this text is for now mm-hmm. in this uh, our particular world situation as mm-hmm. we're watching what seems to be an uncontrolled uh, the humans aren't in control anymore you know as we're watching never a, a were. virus we well, never were <laughs> well very true but i mean i think I should rephrase that. Thank you. I that our even our perception of being yes. in control, which is what we had before, now is evident that hey, you really aren't. Mm-hmm. And um, 
uh, it's becoming more apparent to more more folks. Yeah. And so I think right now it's that that kind of people are desperate and that maybe haven't haven't looked at the church before are, are maybe starting to look for some answers outside of what has become a human concept. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as, we're, as we're talking about this, I, I think that's uh, this text all of a sudden is is really amazing. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. Well, and um, there's some interesting references in here. Uh, for example, the day of Midian, I think, is a very important one. I wanted to ask about that one, yes. Because it, call, it recalls the story of Gideon, and hopefully our Sunday school or our VBS or our, or our whatever Bible school training re- reminds us that Gideon was one of the judges. He was called to, to deliver Israel during the days when Midian was uh, basically controlling uh, the, the power. Of the they time, were the right? power mm-hmm. of the day, mm-hmm. and um, um, it, it's the famous story about when about how he calls the men of Israel together, and there are like twenty thousand of them, and so the Lord says there are too many, so mm-hmm. He sends away ten thousand of them, and He still has ten thousand. There are too many. The the Midianite army is said to have lost 120,000 casualties. Right. You know, so that's, I mean, we're talking about 10 to 1 odds anyway, right? 12 to 1 odds anyway. Nope, that's too many. Too many. So you have the famous episode where he has them drink from the yes, water and the- only 300 are chosen. 300. <sighs> and so, and, and, and basically the point of this is to demonstrate that it was God's power that delivered Midian mm-hmm. into into Israel's hands not it was in, wasn't anything they did right right so so that was i mean this was like one of the most famous battles uh in in their history and um uh, you know it's it, it was obviously a cause for great rejoicing because it was clear that the lord had done this right that they had not done it Mm-hmm. So, so that that's the that's the framework of of God's deliverance that's promised in this passage that it will be a day of great rejoicing, just like that day. Mm-hmm. After that, um, so we, they have this remembrance, and then for all the boots, the trampling warriors, yep. and all the garments rolled yep. in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. I love that passage. Yeah, what does it mean? To me, it means. All the trappings, all the equipment of war will be destroyed. And so it reminds me of Isaiah 2. They'll beat their swords into plowshares mm-hmm. and their spears into pruning, pruning hooks, hooks. And mm-hmm. they shall not learn war anymore. Isn't that, that awesome? Yeah, I love yeah. that. I and love that. I, I, I think a lot of us miss that verse because mm-hmm. um, we go right to for a child is born and yeah. that verse is yeah. that that's verse part of the deliverance really really powerful about this and then a child is born yeah um, and, and uh, interesting again emphasizing that the inability of a child i mean it didn't right. say a king will come a child oh. I, I think that wording is really intentional yeah yeah. Well, and it's it's about the again the whole theme of Isaiah chapter seven through nine is is that these births of these children mm-hmm. are meant to be signs to Israel or to Judah that that God is going to accomplish His purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, now some might think, yeah, but it goes on and says, you know, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How does that apply to Hezekiah? Hezekiah was just a man. Well, we need to understand that these exalted titles were ascribed to kings yeah. not only in Israel and Judah That's but, an but in, the, in the yep. ancient Near East these yep. were exalted titles that were given to kings on a regular basis oh, yes. so it's I think it's fairly clear that this child is is meant to be seen as an heir to the throne of of, of David basically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and ironic interestingly one little tidbit is that for you know for um, a lot of the kings when it says he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord just as his father did it'll name the father but with Hezekiah, it said he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, just as David did. And so there's an emphasis that Hezekiah is, is coming to, to fulfill the role of David uh, in a way that none of the other kings of Judah mm. ever did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, as we're talking about this, my mind keeps going to Stump of Jesse, though, which right? I realize is a different passage. But, but yet- it's, it's related because there you have this, this also, also this same idea that the house of David may have been um, decimated. Nevertheless, God is going to work through the heirs of David 
to accomplish his promise. And the promise in, in Isaiah 11, again, is one of peace, one of all the nations coming to inquire of the Lord, and one of the end of violence. So you have the same, same kind of themes coming together. Mm-hmm. This is God's promised deliverance. This is God's ultimate deliverance. And it's going to happen through the house of David. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I think the point of this is to say, I mean, basically, the promises, the hopes, these are what we've been hearing throughout Advent. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the reasons, again, why we chose, why yeah. I felt like this text would be a good one yeah, for Isaiah, us to deal yeah, with. Yeah, I agree, I agree. God will deliver his people from the burden of their oppressors. God will remove the scourge of war and warfare. God will establish true peace and justice so that all people may thrive together. That is the ultimate promise of God's redemptive hope. Hope. I, yes. That was the word that came to mind was, yeah. this is God's hope. Yes. And that's... Oh. Now, wow. uh, unfortunately... If we look at the world, we have to say that even un- under Jesus' reign, that has not been fully realized. But that's what points us forward. And that, see, this is where we have this sort of duality in Advent. We have mm-hmm. this idea of Jesus was born, but we also have, you know, a lot of the text in Advent point us forward to Jesus' return. Yep. Because it's, it's, Advent's a time of hope. And it's a time to remind us that just because the promises haven't been fully realized even yet, that doesn't mean that they won't right. be eventually. Be already not yet. Yeah, that, that's right. That Calvin likes to, to bring in. That's right. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. Uh, we will be back. Thank you. We're back, and uh, I'm going to take turns asking Christy some questions about the Reformers. So let's just start, just jump right in. Christy, how did the Reformers use this text, um, and what meaning did they see in them? Well, there is no doubt that in this text, they are going to pull Christ out of this, much as Handel does in the Messiah. So there is a tradition of reading this um, with Christ being being Christ, being looking ahead to Christ. And I think what's interesting, I mean, really the Messiah is not that much later when we're talking about late 15th, early 16th, or 16th, uh, early 17th century, and then we're talking about another 100 years, 150 years the Messiah is written. So um, it's not it's not that far apart. And obviously this is part of the tradition. And they see it this way, I think, because they see that in Matthew. So they they're just picking up on how they assume this to happen. So Luther, they see it as a straight up prediction of Jesus' birth. Pretty much. And Luther in particular. Calvin, however, I think we can almost see as a bit of a transitional character because Calvin is more rooted in some of the historical types of critique and analysis, um, kind of showing his humanist background. And remember, we're seeing um, that emergence. Remember, Luther is still a man who is steeped in a, in a medieval scholastic his, um, educational tradition, whereas Calvin's really trained as a humanist. And so you see this kind of development, if you will, in, in the types of, of study that's being done. So Calvin, who's more steeped in, hey, we really need to approach this text through um, historical critical method, or at least in terms of the 16th century approach to that, which we've already talked about is limited, but he at least starts to recognize this is actually Hebrew scripture. And this actually references probably people in uh, a different time. And, 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 and so what's really interesting is you see this kind of shift between, well, obviously that's Christ being predicted, but hey, we're talking about Isaiah, we're talking about King Ahaz, and he even goes so far as to acknowledge that Hezekiah might be who they're, who they're re- referencing. But then he goes on to say, no, that's probably not correct. But he actually offers um, a defense of why that's not correct. So I think what's interesting here is seeing that that shift from, obviously this is this prediction, this Christian text placed in the, in the Old Testament to, um, yeah, maybe uh, <laughs> this is actually a, an Old Testament text that then looks, that, that in some way, shape, or form looks forward. So that sounds pretty impressive on Calvin's part, that he at least had the 
understanding that he needed to interpret the text in light of its historical mm-hmm. setting. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's a big step it's forward. It's a huge step. And I actually pulled a quote from um, um, Sajin Puck, and I've, I've referenced her before. She's really an expert of um, reformers, um, how they were reading scripture, particularly Old Testament texts. And she was a student of David Steinmetz, but I, this is what she says about Calvin. The Old Testament text, according to Calvin, cannot properly apply to the person of Christ on the basis of the text's grammar, literary context, and or prophet's intention. Hmm. So that's what she says of Calvin, someone who's really dug into the nuts and bolts of this um, throughout the Old Testament. So I, I, I think that's an interesting um, development, if you will, into what will eventually become a mo- more of a modern approach that mm-hmm. we would use today. So he's, he's on that on that step yeah that's that's amazing yeah, yeah. um more the more i learn about calvin from you the more i like him <laughs> I, right you know he's he's an interesting character of course and and um because he was he was arrogant because he was very very smart but he's also a very very humble man and he, he battled you could tell he battles this mm. i almost wonder if he was you know in the, the modern world if he was on like the autistic spectrum a little bit really because he he does struggle with these close relationships he's not a he's not a warm and fuzzy guy yeah. <laughs> but he is a hard worker and, and very very committed um to what he feels is god's call in his life mm. And, well, uh, he, wrote, he wrote a commentary on the whole Bible, pretty much, except for Revelation, right? And right, so, right. <laughs> he did. I mean, amazing. Yeah, in and of itself. A- absolutely. So, it, what an interesting character. I don't know that he would have been a warm and fuzzy guy to be friends with, and he certainly was arrogant, but yet, obviously called. So, yeah. um, but I, I wanted to spend a little bit of my time. You know, we've, we're talking. Hey, we're going to preach this for Christmas, and how did they preach for Christmas? Well, remember. They probably didn't preach it for Christmas. Um, And so in the Lutheran tradition, there was definitely going to be a regular Christmas tradition. Um, But by the time you get to Calvin and the Reformed tradition, Christmas often wasn't um, celebrated. Really? Oh, yeah. There was this kind of... um, well, okay, so if you went to Zwingli, Zwingli saw this as part of the Roman Catholic festivals, which Mm. he would have wanted to discard. Calvin didn't it was not celebrated in geneva but he seemed to be a bit indifferent if uh, if if somebody if a if a magistrate wanted to celebrate it yeah probably okay but really not necessary Hmm. um viewing if you will december 25th as a human creation of Mm -hmm. time well which it is of course we have no way to know the actual birth date of jesus exactly so so for Calvin, but people often attribute Calvin to being anti-Christmas, which he really wasn't. And I think what's also important to um, think about with Calvin is that it doesn't mean there wasn't faith on that day in religious practice. Um, remember, he is preaching every day, and he mm. is preaching through the Bible every day. Mm. It would have been a regular day, but it certainly um, wouldn't have been a faithless day, which mm. might be implied. Um, however, which is interesting, and, and where I wanted to head with this, um, so within the Reformed tradition, and especially folks that came to this country, uh, your Puritans and the Presbyterians, the Scots, the Scots, actually were the ones who got rid of the celebration of Christmas. So John Knox and company. Right. But interestingly enough, and I pulled this out, I'm going to grab it here. In our second Helvetic Confession, so if you're a Presbyterian and listening in, you'll know that's part of our book of confessions, that it is actually included in that second Helvetic Confession. Now remember, this is 1566, and this is kind of the... um, the agreed upon um, um, beliefs and practices of the Reformed tradition. So this is uh, all your Swiss folks that are together here. The Scots are with it, although they they aren't going to jump completely on. But us Presbyterians have adopted this into our Book of Confessions, and so um, what 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 this says here um, and five point two two six. If you want to look it up, the festivals of Christ and the saints. Moreover. If in Christian liberty, the churches religiously celebrate the memory of the Lord's nativity, Christmas, circumcision, passion, resurrection, and of his ascension into heaven and the sending of the Holy Spirit upon his disciples, we approve of it highly. So 1566, right. 
But what happens is the Second Helvetic Confession actually doesn't make its way into the early Presbyterians that came here and or the Puritans, and they get rid of it. So they are not celebrating when they come here to the United States. Yeah, those folks use the Westminster Confession pretty much exclu- exclusively. Pretty much exclusively. Um, and so they come over and... Um, this practice is is missing. So we get this Mm. kind of reputation. However, your Episcopalians that are here, your Roman Catholics that are here, they're celebrating Christmas. And so I think you start to get this kind of tradition of secular culture celebrating Christmas. Other people about the colonies are celebrating Christmas. And so it becomes kind of done outside of the official practice in a church. And then it just begins to move its way in back into the church. And so mm. we really see the Presbyterians start to start to do this more, not until 1906 is what I found. Wow. <laughs> to, if you could believe that um, within the Presbyterian tradition. And then ultimately it becomes part of our, our regular practice. So what was the justification prior to that time for not having any kind of official Christmas celebration in church? Well, again, it's it's um, it's Roman Catholic. It's it's uh, it's a it's a festival of that humans have put together, not something done by Christ. Of course, Christ wasn't alive, <laughs> right? To remember yeah. is how birth. is Christ going to institute a celebration of his own birth? Right? Exactly, and and likely why it was added. But there was huge worry, and of course, when. Um, during the Reformation, they were so worried about things being interpreted as being Roman Catholic. And mm. it was so, they, were, they wanted to have such an emphasis on scripture read and what is scriptural and any anything that was extra. So we talked about the music and the dismantling, you know, it's particularly the Zwinglians, this, even dismantling organs, but Calvin was just singing psalms. I mm. mean, we're not... Um, we're not in this, this pattern of having this full, beautiful liturgy. Sure. Um, what I love about today is we've reclaimed a lot of mm-hmm. this um, this practice, realizing it can benefit, it can enhance uh, scripture for us. But sure. I think there was just such a time of we have to we have to be separate. People have to be able to hear the words in their purity for the first time uh, and not be swayed by all these other yeah. um, emotions and, yeah. and, and other pieces, you know? Well, and it, it I think, um, demonstrates the obvious um, influence from Scotland, from the Scottish church uh, on the U.S. Because I guess you could say the Reformed tradition in Switzerland, which was very strong, um, and one of the roots of our ultimately of our faith, which is why we have the Second Helvetic Confession now in, in the Book of Confessions and not just the Westminster Confession. Um, you know, it, it, this this particular feature shows how much we were influenced by the Scottish Church. And in Great Britain, you had this continual um, holy war between the Protestants and the Catholics oh, yes. back and forth for centuries. Absol- oh, absolutely. And and the people yeah. who came here from from that context, whether from England or from Scotland, whether you were from a Protestant or a Catholic church, they brought that that antipathy with them absolutely. into this co- culture. Yeah. Absolutely. And the back and forth and who, and who they were. I mean, they chop off the head of the King Charles I, right. you know, and... And, and they weren't just ending the, his life. They were ending the monarchy. And this was a monarch that cl- claimed to be there by divine right. What a shift. You yeah, know, what, sure. what, it, it, there was just a lot of secular political ideology that went, that went hand in hand with um, tradition. So uh, they just got rid of it all. Mm-hmm. They got rid of it yeah, all. So they had their yeah. own identity that they felt best represented Christ and, 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 sure. and being a Christian disciple. I'm with you. I'm, I'm glad we brought back. Uh, the the liturgy and I'm I mean you know since Christmas Eve is one of my favorite services of the year I'm glad we have one. <laughs> well, you know, and it's it's this interesting mix, isn't it? I mean, when I look at the secular world, you know, you can say, gosh, there's people out there, and the only thing they do that's remotely Christian is Christmas Eve, and it, they tend to secularize it so much. It's really it's it's really come away from being a disciple in the church. On has the other- has has hardly any any um sub christian substance to it exactly on the other hand it's one of the few times that we may get some some people in the in the in the pews who really don't know the story of christ Mm -hmm. and so it's an opportunity so i and i hear this from time to time you know as as people are struggling trying to figure out how to balance um the christian or the the secular uh 
practices and, and celebrations with the religious tradition. Mm-hmm. And it goes back and forth. I mean, I had one pastor, you know, Santa is Satan. Mm-hmm. Well, you know. A Presbyterian? Yes, oddly oh, enough. Oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> I've seen that from uh, other settings, but uh, yeah. not, not in the Presbyterian. Yeah, yeah. well, I had mixed. Uh, I, I wasn't sure he was he was Presbyterian to the core, but nonetheless, right. that, that I heard that, and I thought, well, your point is that our secular celebrations have so far removed us from from being true disciples. On the other hand, if we could happen to find those those inklings of love and hope within Santa, then we have a, an opening to share um, to share the love of Christ. So, well, and as you say, there are many people who who one of the few times they actually come to church is on Christmas Eve and. Hopefully they hear the gospel preached to them, and you know whether they what they do with it is up to them. But at least, you know, it is it is almost an evangelistic opportunity. It in is. Which we're we're whether we're reading scriptures, whether we're doing a festival of lessons and carols, whether we're doing a Christmas cantata, what or whether it's just straight preaching. You know, it's we're still preaching the gospel. Exactly, to them. exactly. So it's um, I, it, 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 anyway, it's an it's an interesting development within the church um in in the USA. Uh, the Presbyterian Church in the USA to see um, this kind of development and, and to think of 1906. My grandfather was born in 1900, so <laughs> to think about you know as a little kid, he may not have had had a wow. A cel- I mean, sure they had a secular celebration, but but to have a Christmas Eve service is really interesting yeah. for me to process. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. Yeah. Well, this this church that we're sitting in was founded in 1878. There you and go. So, you know what puts us in that framework. Oh, wouldn't that be fun to go look through those archives? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, well, the, thank you. I um, think we have another segment coming up. Yep, thank you. Hi, everybody. We are back, and we're on our third segment here. And I think as we are moving into thinking about using this passage um, for Christmas Eve, I think we want to think about who shows up in our churches and um, how this passage can be uh, hopeful and a promise of Christ for them. Well, you know, as I think about the crowd at Christmas Eve, you know, obviously there are the people who are faithful week in, week out. They're always there. Their faith is, it runs deep and and their commitment is solid rock solid and you know this year i mean i've heard from people like that this year i've heard from people about how you know how how hard it's been on them you know because we've had to distance we've had to shelter in place we've had to go without meeting in person and um uh, so that's going to be part of the audience. And I think those folks need to be reminded, you know, God is still the Lord of hosts. We didn't go yes, there when we, we talked talk about the text. About the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sebaot, <laughs> as Gene Peterson translates it, Lord of the angel armies. And the point of that is that God, the God who promised is the God who has the power to keep his promise because he is, the, he is God all-powerful. So, so they need to be reminded that, that God, has, God is going to keep his promises, um, and, and they trust his promises, and they know that. Right. I think we have other people. Obviously, I mean, I, I don't know. Some churches are churches where everybody goes away. Some churches are churches where everybody comes. Right. My churches have typically been churches where everybody comes, and you have, right. a, I have, I have people who come out of the woodworks in the community who consider this to be their church, but the only time they're here is on Christmas right. Eve. Exactly. And I think for them, you know, it gets more complicated because I'm not sure. I mean, they're going to hear this passage read and they're going to think, what? Right. They're looking for Jesus in the manger and the angels. They want to be reassured. They probably want to be reassured just as much as anybody else by the normal rituals of culture. The yes. normal cultural rituals that have happened, which means you come to church on Christmas Eve. We've we've been doing our Christmas cantata for several years, but you know before that it was it was the typical scripture lessons, or we talked about Luke or whatever, you know. And um, 
those folks are going to come looking for sameness and it's not going to be same. This isn't the, this isn't the same. A lot of people, I think when it comes around an electionary, they just don't go here mm-hmm. um, because they want to. Well, and it can't be the same. It can't be the same because whether we're meeting in person or not, we can't have the kind of singing that we've had no, before typically this we, isn't the same <clears throat> we're not going to do a cantata at our church on christmas no, eve we, can't, you know? we aren't gonna sing i don't i mean we've gotten that far maybe we won't be having services at all right and so we have a very different situation yes we'll have we'll have services if if they have to be virtual exactly i will see many virtual services i i think across across the united states and really across the world for christmas eve and so how do we have people listen anew i think i think there's going to be a hunger for what they've heard before but yet a hunger for how does this apply now i have never seen i've never been in this space before i've never been this scared before i've never i've never not been able to do what i want to do how do we how do we well, and I it? think we go back to that theme that we've been focusing on throughout uh, Advent and in dealing with Christmas Eve as well. It was well; it's the same theme, and that is, you know, the God who promises is the God who is faithful. Here in our text, the God who promises is the God all powerful, and He's also. It also says, "The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this." Yeah, yeah. You know, God is not only powerful enough to do this; He has the passion to accomplish this. This is God's heart. This is God's passion right. to to see the end of violence, to see the end of oppression, to see peace and justice uh, prevail so that all people can thrive together. And, and I know that's not the typical Christmas Eve good news message, but I think we can translate it into terms that will relate to people who have been living in COVID-19. It's been a year that has felt oppressively burdensome. Absolutely. And God is a God who lifts burdens. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. and, and he promises to lift burden to lift burdens. And he's the God who is faithful to his promises. He's the God who's powerful right. enough to make to complete his promises. And he's the God who's who has a passion to do this. So Right. <laughs> and the God who not only creates, but the God who walks with us. Mm-hmm. Um and and this is a reflection of walking with us throughout our human history. I mean, this is yeah. this is really incredibly, incredibly deep and thick. And well, and you know, you asked amazing. the question about how 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 do you find hope in deliverance and judgment? Mm-hmm. The hope is Emmanuel. God right. is with us, and I think you know. Yes. You know, one of the things I, one of the things I love about Jurgen Moltmann's Crucified God is he talks about how God suffers the death of Jesus on the cross. Mm-hmm. You know, and he talks about is God can God suffer? Can God you know, suffer? There is this yep. there is this uh, theological tradition that God, God is above all right, that. Right, there God is. Cannot, there cannot is. suffer. And and we tend to assume that that he's above all that. But if God suffered the death of his son, the idea is God suffers with us all in the Absolutely. the things Absolutely. we have to bear in life. Well, and so if God allows judgment to come on his people because of their disobedience, God suffers, suffers with them. Also. Yes, now, I'm yes, not yes, going to yes. claim that COVID-19 is a judgment from God. That is crazy in my mind to I think agree. that. That's not, <clears throat> I agree. That's not going to draw That's bad theology. That's bad theology. Yes, I'm yes. not going to connect those dots. But, um, but it feels oppressively burdensome for all of us right, right. now. And God suffers that I, I, with us. Exactly, that God is suffering this with us. And, yeah. and that would be a whole other segment on how we understand um, right. how we understand the evil and how we understand disease. Well, and, and I think and that's where cases. you go. I think that's where you go because there are going to be some people who are coming just out of the superficiality of we always do this on Christmas. And, um, you know, I just want to, I just want to know that the, that the rituals, the cultural rituals of yesteryear right. of my, of my grand, of my grandparents, my grandparents' Christmas Eve service is going to still happen. And it's not, right. it's going to be a very different service. It's a different service. Mm-hmm. But, um, but you also have some people who are going to be in the crowd who are going to be thinking, yeah, this is just really a bunch of hogwash because I keep up with the news and I see all of the evil and the ugly mm-hmm. and the violence that goes on in our world. And all of these highfalutin promises that you guys in the church like to throw around so casually, 
just don't apply to a world where um, there is so much so cruelty much and cruelty. violence. But what's, violence. what's what when you're talking about this, I keep thinking of yeah, and that's the world that's living into this fear, and they're constantly filling themselves with fear, and they're responding to it in fear. But what happens if we shift and we start to respond to the world in hope, and yeah. we start to respond to the world in love? Think about the shift that goes on, not only within what we end up, how we end up physically responding, but how we respond emotionally, and how we um, end up in this realizing this kind of sacredness of life that we have and, and this beauty of life that, that is there, even even in the suffering. Mm-hmm. And that's what's amazing. And, and I think this fear-infested world, I mean, this is trying to win. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is. And I think when we pull ourselves out of it um, and we listen, and we listen to the hope, it's yeah. uh, incredibly powerful. Yeah, well, and, and there you have the people who, lived in darkness have seen a great absolutely that's where this is like in some ways the perfect text i mean it it, it, it's it's this text that that says yeah our our, we we kind of understand what isaiah is talking about here but look listen to these beautiful words well i'm reminded of a phrase it's from joy to the world the christmas carol the joy to the world he comes to make his glories known Far as the curse is found. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Far as the curse Curses. is found. So in every nook and cranny of darkness, this is a light that's going to bring hope and promise mm-hmm. and deliverance. In every nook and cranny of human existence, far as the curse exactly. is found. Exactly, exactly. You know, there is no place that we, cannot, that we can go in our lives. There is no place so dark that God's light has not always already been there. God's love has not already been there and already paved the road for us to make our way back. And we all we have to do is follow it. Exactly. Exactly. Now, it's right there. <laughs> you know, there, there are some people who at the end of the day are just not going to go there. They can't. Right. But um, um, we can still put the message out there for them. And I think there is an answer. Um I, I, I believe agree. it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer yeah. who who pointed out that um, God's answer to suffering is Jesus on the cross. Exactly. And and so, so if if someone is really stumbling over, you know, I can't believe in a God who promises all these great things while the world is so full of evil and suffering. The answer is, yeah, and God took all of that evil and suffering all that pain into himself in order to redeem it all exactly yeah and that's awesome yeah i think that's exactly where we need to end i think so too thanks thanks christy bye-bye merry christmas everybody That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.